Listener Production. Hello, Tom Tilly with you for The Briefing. It is Thursday, March 10, and in this episode, more inspiring stories from the community response to the floods in the northern rivers of New South Wales. A lot of the places have got kind of six, seven, eight, nine river crosses to get into, and most of the bridges are gone, collapsed, impassable, really dangerous, rocks, big boulders, Rio bars sticking out everywhere. That's part two of our briefing on the incredible community response to the flood tragedy. First, Katrina Blouse is here for today's headlines. Hey Tom, hi everyone. Well, PM Scott Morrison will be in Brisbane today to speak to more flood victims. It was after he was met with this reception in the flood-ravaged town of Lismore in the New South Wales Northern Rivers yesterday. So the trip was carefully stage managed, which meant he didn't have to meet those protesters directly. And reporters on the ground say there were no opportunities for members of the public to walk right up to him and speak to him. Clearly, they're trying to um, avoid what happened in Cabago after Mm. the bushfires. Uh, He did speak to locals, but that was a bit more carefully managed and off camera. So in a press conference, he declared a state of emergency and has apologised for the government's slow response. I do apologise that the amount of support that has been provided and continues to be provided, I still don't believe will always meet the expectations that are just at you know very high levels. So Tom, I've noticed a real trend lately with a, a politicians ticking a box and apologising by saying the words, I apologise or I do apologise, which to me sounds so insincere. I'd rather hear someone say sorry. Well, it was qualified and then really tied to people's expectations. And it essentially sounded like he was saying people's expectations were too high and it wasn't a genuine apology. He also addressed the slow deployment of the Defence Force, which has been really at the heart of people's frustration. I think we have to be realistic that in any natural disaster, we don't have uh, those resources which has ADF just waiting around the corner. So once again, he's talking about people's expectations on the timing of that response. So more than 4,000 defence personnel are now working on the flood response. And and I get that, you know, there is a lag between an event happening and the deployment of those resources. Another 465 people will be deployed today. Uh, The government has also announced tax cuts and two extra disaster payments for some people in the area. But again, there's a bit of a controversy with these payments because the extra $2,000 per adult is only available for people in the Lismore, Richmond Valley and Clarence Valley shires, but not Byron, Ballina or the Tweed shires. And there were plenty of towns in those areas like Mullumbimby, Ocean Shores, New Brighton Mm. that were devastated by the floods. And funnily, when you look at the electoral map, Katrina, (sighs) the shires who don't get the extra payment are in the labour seat of Richmond and the areas that do get the extra payment are in the national seat of Page. So... Very interesting. The Mm. Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce was challenged about that on ABC 7.30 last night. Just the suggestion that we would do something like that is, to be quite frank, it's it's, it's offensive because it's so wrong. So that's Barnaby Joyce there. I guess if it's offensive and an oversight, why not relook at it and uh, <laughs> announce some new payments today? Yeah, it's just it's just hard to imagine why those people in Mullum, New Brighton, Ocean Shores, Ballina, who were devastated by floods, don't need that payment. And you can understand the political cynicism here 
after the sports rorts and the car park grants controversy. Absolutely. To other flood news, sadly, another flood death was recorded in Western Sydney. Police have found the body of a delivery driver yesterday afternoon, and that's brought the New South Wales death toll to nine. While in Queensland, the floods in Queensland are now officially the deadliest disaster the state has faced in more than a decade, uh, surpassing the human toll lost to Cyclone Debbie and Oswald combined. 19 people have died in Queensland, two others are still missing. Wow. I mean, what do you what do you make of that? It seemed like this was a a disaster that unfolded quite slowly. Like it you look bad and then oh, it's quite bad and now here we are uh, a week and a half later realizing that the death toll is higher than those two cyclones combined. I think what it's shown is that floods don't behave predictably. We release flood maps in Queensland after every major event and the one that we've just had didn't behave like any of the floods in in living history. So I think we're going to need to relook at that and not assume that areas that we thought were safe are going to be in the future. And it's also about the speed of it as well, isn't it? The 2011 floods were really quick. This flood disaster built up over a few days. And to the Ukraine, where a 12-hour ceasefire is taking place in six of the areas that are affected by fighting, including outlying parts of Kiev, the capital. It's after Ukrainian officials say Russia has destroyed a children's hospital in the port city of Mariupol during a supposed ceasefire with numerous people buried in the rubble. Local authorities have been burying the dead in a mass grave. They've dug a trench at least 25 metres long in one of the city's old cemeteries as they push bodies wrapped in carpets and bags over the edge. Oh, gosh. So the UN believes at least 1,500 civilians have been killed in this fighting so far. Meanwhile, sanctions mean a Russian debt default is imminent, according to the American credit rating agency Fitch. The agency's downgraded Russia's economy to junk status, which is a big red flag for investors Um, saying that basically Russia may not be able to pay back its debts. So Australia's military will grow by a third to almost 80,000 uniformed personnel by 2040 uh, because of strategic risks posed by China and Russia. Australia faces its most difficult and significant, most dangerous security environment in 80 years. So the news of this big expansion is set to be unveiled by the Prime Minister Scott Morrison today at Brisbane's Gallipoli Barracks. And the proposed $38 billion plan would see the full-time Australian Defence Force grow to a size not seen since the Vietnam War, and it's going to require its biggest recruitment drive in 40 years. Which is going to be a struggle because the ADF is already uh, finding it really hard to attract enough personnel for their current recruitment targets. So the Navy will require the largest boost to meet the growth in surface vessels and future nuclear-powered submarines. Submariner numbers alone need to grow from a current figure of 900 to at least 2,300. So fancy a career change, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'd love to drive one of those nuclear subs, but I'll have to wait, (laughs) what, 20 years to be able to do it? I'll be too old by then, Katrina. They don't want me in the Army or the Navy at that point. (laughs) This story comes with a warning for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who are advised that this headline contains the name and descriptions of a person who has died. The jury is out in a historic court case in Darwin. The Northern Territory jury will begin deliberations today on the fatal shooting of Indigenous man Kumanjai Walker by police officer Zachary Rolfe, which happened on November 9, 2019. Constable Zachary Rolfe has pleaded not guilty to murder and two other charges over the death of Walker. 
which took place in the remote Indigenous community of Yundamu, which is 300 k's northwest of Alice Springs. Rolf and his partner, Constable Adam Eberl, had been trying to arrest Walker after the teenager escaped from an alcohol rehab facility to attend a funeral. Now, Walker then put up a fight. He stabbed Rolf in the shoulder with a pair of scissors before Rolf fired his Glock pistol three times. Prosecutors say that Constable Rolf's first shot was justified, but the second and third shots were not legally justified because by then Constable Aberl had effectively restrained Walker on the ground. Now, the defence say that Rolf's split-second intuitive decision to fire his weapon was in line with the police training that dictates officers should draw and potentially use their firearm if threatened with an edged weapon. Now, the reason this case is being heavily scrutinised is because First Nations people are six times more likely to die in custody than non-Indigenous people. And if a guilty verdict is returned, it would actually be the first time a police officer in Australia has been convicted for the murder of an Aboriginal person in custody. So hugely significant trial here. Yeah, very interesting to see what that jury comes back with. Thank you for the headlines today, Katrina. We'll catch you next week. Um, We're about to jump into some more fascinating interviews that look into the community response on the Northern Rivers of New South Wales. In yesterday's briefing, we brought you the amazing story of Michael Barnes, the Lismore helicopter pilot, who's part of this incredibly responsive, complex logistical effort to get basic supplies into those Northern Rivers, New South Wales communities who've been cut off by flood. Here's part of that interview. We had a team of about 100 at our shed. It looked like a Costco in there. Mm. I reckon it would have had to have been $2 million worth of stock in there at one wow. stage. And uh, then we set up a makeshift job custom. So we were doing bulk drops to the big towns like Woodburn, Corakai, Broadwater, Riley's Hill, all those ones down in the south there. But it became evident that there was a lot of really remote houses that were just completely cut off. We had people hiking up into the hills to do welfare checks on people Mm. and coming back with specific lists like they need insulin, they need this, they need that. We had it all. So we were doing very tailor-made drops for these people. Michael Barnes there. It was just amazing hearing about that effort. We also spoke to some people on the Gold Coast who helped put those semi-trailer loads of donations together. And as our producers here at The Briefing rung around the Northern Rivers community researching that story, we came across a bunch of people who've been part of this huge local effort to deal with the flood disaster. And in this episode, we wanted to give some more time to those voices of the Northern Rivers to help tell this story and give more detail of this incredible community effort, an effort to which the state and federal governments are only now even trying or getting close to catching up on. They probably never will, which, as we've reported, has been extremely infuriating for locals. Here's the first person we want to bring to you, Jack Bailey. He's a Northern Rivers local who's been hiking into some of those remote communities that have been cut off since last Monday. I don't think prepared for anything of this magnitude. I mean, a lot of the places have got kind of six, seven, eight, nine river crosses to get into, and most of the bridges are gone, collapsed, impassable, really dangerous, rocks, big boulders, Rio bars sticking out everywhere. Getting access to these communities has been really, really hard. So tell us about how those people are coping. They're super, super resilient people, but um, it's also a really emotional time. I mean, the community's been absolutely mind-blowingly amazing, kind of hiking supplies Then We've been putting zip lines across the worst uh, bridge collapses and stuff to be able to ferry food and supplies and people across. 
they've just been coming down and doing what they can, you know. There's been a few helicopter companies who've been doing tireless work, dropping supplies out to the really remote places. There were two um, big military choppers doing laps on the first couple of days, and we unloaded a few of them. So it's cool to have a bit of support from those guys. But, um, yeah, I've got no idea how they're doing it. I think, obviously, they're just going, I don't know. I'm a bit baffled by that one. So you did see two military choppers early on getting involved. There was definitely two military choppers on the first. I think this was on day three. We we unloaded some stuff right up in the top of the hills. Mm. And that was super lovely. They were really kind and, you know, they were doing their thing for sure. There's been a lot of criticism that it was too little early on and now that more help's coming that it's too late. Can you understand a lot of that frustration? Hugely, man. Um, I don't know which government agency is responsible for this type of thing, so I don't think it's fair for me to point out any one specific agency. And it's definitely not due to um, the people that are working in those agencies. It's obviously the people that are at the top. Well, I guess in a very basic sense, we live in a developed economy where there's billions of dollars set aside for natural disasters and emergency management and a sense that when we're in trouble, our governments will help us. I think that's a basic and fairly reasonable expectation that people have. And it clearly seems that expectation hasn't been met or anywhere near it in this case. Completely agree there. The kind of positive to that is it kind of shows that the community is the most powerful it's, it's, it's more powerful than the government, you know. And the, way, when it, the way everyone's come together, it's kind of put the destiny back into our own hands, which I think is a really important thing to remember going forward, that we do have a lot of power. That was Jack Bailey. Another local we spoke to was Sophie Marsh, who's also been volunteering in the cleanup. Every single person who hasn't been affected by these floods, if they're not doing those recovery missions, they're in houses ripping walls out with sledgehammers. You know, you've got people cooking sandwiches and walking up and down the street or collecting whatever donations they can, like people are stretched to their limit. And I think what is born from that is a sense of despair and feeling a bit left in the cold. And I think that was the biggest problem with, and I speak for a lot of my community when I say that we weren't impressed with Scott Morrison's response. How would you sum up the government response so far? It's confusing. I'm confused and I think they probably are too. The one thing that I also want to make really clear is a lot of that anti-ADF sentiment or even media kind of reporting on that anti-ADF sentiment as if it's the most important thing that's come out of this time. It's absolutely not. People here are grateful for any assistance that, you know, they've been given. I think the problem people had is when that was the focus of Scott Morrison's only posts on his Instagram that was where the issues started to be born. And it doesn't lie within those government agencies, the people within them who are putting themselves on the line. It is an issue from the top. Sounds like you're really concerned with the way it's spun at a political level. Absolutely. This region has long been criticised for, you know, its response to a lot of things. But I think what I would love people to understand is there is no sense of separation here through this crisis, every single person has come together in this community. There is so much strength and there is so much 
I guess, human spirit present here in the wake of literal death and destruction. Like you can't spin that any other way other than seeing it for what it is. And it's pretty incredible. And we're all incredibly proud of each other. That was Sophie Marsh. And I'll bring you one more conversation we had. This is a guy called Harry Dudley. He's been helping out his neighbours in Mullumbimby, South Golden, New Brighton. These are all towns about 20 k's north of Byron. And one of his focuses has been helping people deal with the growing mould issue. Here's what he's experienced. It's really, really horrible. You're seeing whole streets with people's every possession they own just dumped on the curb. And then when you get to Lismore, the water's been much more toxic and it's full of sewerage. So it's not like a a white fridge on a curb. It's basically a shit-stained fridge. Mm. on a curb and everyone's possessions are like unrecoverable because of that. And how have things changed? It sounds like initially it was just shock and you were all doing as much as you could to help each other out. But as the days have gone on, part of the pain has been a frustration at a lack of help from state government authorities and the ADF. Yeah, that's right. It's like day one, it's complete shock and then you know waters reside and then the immediate danger to life isn't there but I've never experienced a flood but it's it's the following days that it it doesn't get any easier it's a major cleanup it's lives devastated it's people just still displaced it feels like we're making some sort of a dent here but then you realize you know we're only just starting a job of getting someone back in their home. To your point with the AEF, like for a week, I did not see one uniformed person in Mullumbimby. There was a bit more of a presence of RFS in Lismore, but it's all civilians doing the work. The community halls have turned into basically army military bases run by civilians you rock up, you say, what do you need? They'll direct you, you know, if you've got a shovel, we need you down at this house here. And just no government presence whatsoever. It's been really frustrating. That was Harry Dudley from the area to the north of Byron. And there's been some pretty clear themes in these conversations we've been having. The frustration at the lack of government effort, which this week is slowly improving. And then of course, the just amazing community effort And the story from our episode yesterday was an incredible example of that. Semi-trailer loads of donations being distributed by private helicopters to these remote communities. And I hope you've enjoyed hearing these stories of these people on the ground. Stay tuned to our headlines each day as we follow the government response and the plight of these locals as they trudge on with this huge recovery that's going to take months and years. Tomorrow on The Briefing, have you seen the Netflix series The Tinder Swindler? And we're actually going to speak to one of the victims. Listener.